there was in the last several months a spate several articles in a wide variety of publications on languishing probably the best was the april 21st new york times article by a psychologist named adam grant and he called it there's a name for the blah you're feeling it's called languishing so if you get the chance and uh, you'd like to check that out it's a good article but i'll be summarizing some of it a little bit of it and uh, then moving on to put in insights from both buddhism and uh, clinical psychology as well as some of my own proposals so languishing is a feeling of apathetic monotony a muddling through life a kind of a limbo state between on the one hand uh thriving at the peak of well-being and on the other end the pits of depression misery panic and anxiety there's this kind of third pole which would be the absence of affect a kind of listlessness what the french call ennui so if you've ever had any image or sense of what ennui is then you know what languishing is it's just it's a, a lack of excitement but without signs of mental illness simply a lack of engagement with life a kind of prevailing apathy this idea goes all the way back 2500 years the buddha noted five hindrances to what he called both enlightenment and peace of mind and uh, a kind of reliable happiness some of the hindrances uh, these five hindrances are pretty obvious to us there's addiction there's hatred and aversion there's extreme self-doubt and there's anxiety but the fifth was essentially languishing what the buddha called mida mita and uh, a kind of lack of engagement and apathy uh, a wandering through life without any degree of excitement or involvement the psychologist corey keys uh, is responsible in a good way for bringing the term languishing to a clinical status so they wrote a paper called change in level of positive mental health as a predictor of something like the future risk of mental illness but anyway the point of the paper was that when you backtrack from people who have clinical depression or anxiety 10 years previous to their diagnosis you don't see actually depression or anxiety you very often see symptoms associated with languishing a kind of apathetic lack of engagement with life so for Corey Keyes languishing is a serious precursor for mood disorders there's an array of telltale signs associated with languishing for example avoiding activities that one in the past would have found interesting engaging one would have taken time to pursue a persistent lack of motivation an unsettled 
um, even detached regard towards endeavors in life, a kind of monotony to the days without feeling anything to really look forward to or get uh, enthusiastic about. Um, and many of the clinicians who've written on, <clears throat> psychologists who've written on languishing note that one of the insidiousness uh, or insidious qualities of languishing is the lack of alarming symptoms, which mean while we're languishing, we fail to respond or think that our loss of motivation is of concern because we're not experiencing either the complete hopelessness of depression or the anxious ruminations and catastrophizing insomnia of anxiety disorders, because we're not experiencing the notable uh, signatures of mental illness, we think that languishing is just a kind of inevitable part or phase or, or outcome or is not to be taken seriously. But again, uh, Corey Key's research shows that it's a very often a precursor to future uh, severe mood disorders. Now, if languishing is emblematic of this period, it may be due to the sustained stress associated with social distancing and the economic catastrophe of the pandemic. During sustained stress, uh, there's a prolonged secretion of cortisol, and cortisol is the sort of stress survival uh, hormone that kicks in for long durations when adrenaline, long after adrenaline fades out, cortisol just kicks in and keeps us going. But over time, cortisol depletes dopamine, and when you deplete dopamine, you experience some of the uh, uh, conditions associated with languishing, languishing, especially a lack of joy and motivation in life. And I believe that a lot of that is very likely, but I'd like to propose that the ennui of our times, the languishing that seems to become somewhat endemic of this period, is due to something other or it has another cause as well besides the lasting ongoing secretion of cortisol for me and i have uh, a small army of clinical studies to back this proposal up um, it's the outcome of a lack of purpose uh, a lack of a profound purpose animating our lives there are really just too many studies to mention that show direct links between flourishing, uh, positive engagement, and having a higher purpose for our lives. Uh, in papers such as uh, clinical studies such as Purpose, Hope, and Life Satisfaction, the University of Notre Dame, and Purpose of Life and Emerging Adulthood, and so on and so forth. I mean, there's a, just an ongoing array. Identified having a 
purpose of life for our life that we uh, actively pursue, pursue and state is associated with flourishing, satisfaction, and a diminishment of apathy and a sense of disengagement. So uh, there are, I'm going to dive into that in a moment. I'd like to note that um, there are two proposals that some of the papers of recent had, the recent articles had, to addressing languishing. The first is in the Adam Grant piece, and he notes the idea of naming to tame it. Well, he doesn't mention that, that phrase literally, but name it to tame it is a Buddhist idea that in labeling our state of being, we um, actually alleviate some of the symptoms. And this has been shown also uh, in the work of Ethan Cross and so many others that if you give word to your emotional state and you can say it to other people, there's an alleviation, there's a diminishment of a sense of being alone and stuck. Um, <clears throat> we remind ourselves that what we're experiencing is not ours, it's not unique to us, that it's actually common. So as Grant writes, I really like this. Uh, this is one of my favorite uh, sentences in this piece. He says, instead of saying great or fine, imagine if we answered the query, how are you doing with I'm languishing? <laughs> it would be refreshing foil for the toxic positivity, he calls it, uh, that is a quintessentially American pressure to be upbeat, all the time. So uh, if you would feel comfortable saying, I am languishing, it seems like a little, when you say it out loud, it feels a little alarming. But uh, yes, if we can give word to it, I would prefer saying, I'm experiencing ennui. But at least giving some label to the experience does for sure help. It reminds us we're not alone, makes us feel, uh, it makes us want to share and talk about our experience. So that's beneficial. Now in the work of Kate Sweeney, who's a professor at University of California, um, she proposes that flow states, uh, which is a, a term which was actually first developed by the Hungarian psychologist, American Hungarian psychologist, Mihaly, and God, I hate to have to pronounce this guy's last name, Csikszentmihalyi, uh, Csikszentmihalyi, uh, literally, it's a word without, it's a, and it's a, got 15 letters in it and not a vowel in there. Um, but anyway, he came up with the term flow, and it's an important psychological concept. Um, it's being the state of being immersed in tasks where our sense of self and time dissipates. And this is important because one, when we're in a state of flow, um, self-oriented thought and what's called default mode operation of the brain stops, which is a good thing. We People are far happier when they're engaged in, you know, uh, 
gardening, pottery, drawing, playing an instrument, cooking, and so forth. Um, but Kate Sweeney showed that in a survey with over 5,000 people in during the original quarantine in China, the individuals who tolerated their confinement were not the most optimistic by nature. They were the ones who developed the most flow activities. So once again, resilience to the unending monotonous parade of days during the quarantine was not alleviated necessarily by being optimistic. It was alleviated by having an array of completely immersive, absorbing tasks. And this is why, as uh, Grant notes, that Americans spent so much time bake, break, baking bread and you know doing puzzles. I didn't do either of those, but I gather that a lot of people did during the pandemic. I think I would chew my arm off before I tried to do a uh, jigsaw puzzle, <coughs> but I digress. Um, so, uh, but I would like to propose that perhaps the most efficient way to address languishing would be to develop uh, in line with the work of the existentialists, a sense of purpose. None of us are born with it, as they noted, the existentialists noted. There is no real purpose to being born as a human being. They contrasted it like with a hammer. A hammer has a purpose to hit nails, presumably. But human beings are just born, and each of us defines our uh, purpose through the engagement with the world that is most authentic to each of us. It's a value or belief that adds a motivating meaning to even our most mundane endeavors. Uh, having a purpose has been shown to be uh, central to healthy psychological functioning. In a paper called Trauma, Resilience, and Recovery, it was shown to be perhaps the single key factor in resilience after traumatic events, having a purpose. And we see that in, of course, the famous work of Viktor Frankl and Man's Search for Meaning, Frankel was a survivor of uh, the most horrific concentration camp during the wars. Theresienstadt was I, I don't remember the exact name, but um, he noted that those who survived were those who had a purpose, a motivating purpose. Um, now, if I could give a brief survey Throughout the bulk of human evolution, um, hunting and gathering, hunting and gathering weren't just for our self-preservation, but it was for the shared survival of the clan that we were members of. It would be a major accomplishment for the clan to continue given the amount of predators, the threat of starvation and disease and natural disasters, and <clears throat> of course, other clans that would be very uh, hostile towards us. So we all 
had baked into us a higher purpose, which was to survive. We had to make sure that those in our clan and those in our tribe would survive as well. So all of our endeavors, um, whether we were foraging for food or making shelters, had the purpose of trying to uh, increase the the uh, likelihood of thriving and survival for those we depended on. So that continued for a long time, around 4,500 years ago, if memory serves, the ancient uh, Sumerians of Mesopotamia developed the first concepts of a god and that was their kind of, uh, I guess, for lack of a better term, organizing concepts that lend coherence to our endeavors and our tasks. Now we weren't, the higher purpose of life wasn't to keep our clan going. It was now to serve the will of gods. And this religious devotion continued for many thousands of years in both polytheistic and monotheistic religions, and it resulted in the creation of staggering achievements, pyramids and cathedrals and mausoleums like the Taj Mahal. Um, and religious devotion involved seeing something more important than mundane economic survival, you know, in other words, paying the rent and uh, having enough food. It was, as um, the great sociologist Max Weber, I believe, uh, was the one who noted that we had a calling. Each of us had a calling. In other words, our career, what we did for a living wasn't something that we so much did alone, it was something that served the uh, will of a god, and it was part of our salvation. So there was imbued in every, you know, if you were a shoemaker um, and you went every day to build the same kind of shoe day in and day out, it wasn't just the absorbingness of the task that awarded away uh, languishing and monotony and ennui. It was also the fact that you believed that it was God's will, that you were serving a purpose and that you would be given some kind of everlasting life and would be some rewarded in some way, and that it was part of a higher plan for mankind. Well, of course, all of this uh, uh, continued until the atrocities of the early 20th century, especially the First World War, which was one of, which shook all of mankind. And it's um, the, the sheer toll it took, uh, the countless lives that were lost and the savagery of the war itself. Um, along with the advancements that suddenly occurred in science and psychology with the First World War, there was this disillusionment uh, with the idea of one's purpose was to serve God. And then 
shortly after that period, there was a transition where a lot of people found purpose in nationalism, convictions that the state that they were a part of, whether it was fascistic or communist or uh, <coughs> uh, another variation, would provide a better future, prosperity, uh, that technological advancements would result in, uh, in a life that felt uh, free from all of the mundanities and where we could prosper and do and explore whatever we wanted. Uh, and so there was um, this hope and faith that in serving not our endeavors not only served ourselves but served the state and that for many uh, gave a sense of purpose now let's jump to 2020 and the pandemic in and of itself at first provided a sense of purpose which was to simply survive during an economic and health disaster but as time passed, so many of us became numbed to the monotonous of the days without social engagement uh, due to social distancing and the enriching experiences of travel and um, all the and so many activities which were no longer available emptied life out of a sense of purpose and in the meanwhile in this country trump and his republican base of base eviscerated any i would say delusional hope that our country was animated by lofty ideals so even our, even our foundational sense that maybe american democracy was was some kind of ideal worth laboring for everything that could provide a higher sense of purpose uh, started to dissipate. And so for any number of reasons, we've found ourselves, or so many found ourselves muddling through life, seeking, uh, feeling apathetic to our tasks over time. Uh, and as a response, uh, many people decided to have babies or adopt dogs. And uh, nothing wrong with having babies or adopting dogs, but clinical psychology and 2,500 years of Buddhist insights show us that having a, a purpose for life, it requires loftier aims than changing diapers and walking a dog every day a few times. Um, studies show that individuals who thrive and who have a uh, purpose are, uh, have characteristics of uh, volunteerism or experiences, regular experiences of awe or finding wonder in life. Um, to be sure, in fact, uh, anxiety, depression, and insomnia is more prevalent in parents than in people who don't have children. So in terms of 
countering languishing. It's not, uh, I mean, there's many joys that, that parenting would bring, but addressing languishing would not be one of them. Um, the Journal of Positive Psychology showed that, and as well as studies by Thoits and Hewitt and at Vanderbilt University and another study by Elias and Souter showed that people who felt that their tasks helped a large array of people outside of their direct family uh, through volunteerism were the happiest and had the greatest sense of a thriving and uh, flourishing in life. Ed Diner and Martin Seligman, who are the founders of positive psychology and some of the most influential uh, psychologists in the 20th century showed that the happiest 10% of us engage in positive social activities that help not just friends and family, but strangers in some way. The psychologist Abraham Maslow, one of my heroes, who developed the hierarchy of needs, showed that purpose, from his perspective, didn't accrue from satisfying our basic needs for, you know, food, shelter, physical safety. Uh, it came through what he called self-actualization. And that was, to him, and I find this both profound and important, uh, he said that no matter how familiar an experience those who self-actualize use every opportunity to experience each task, no matter how familiar, from a new perspective. They actively seek wonder and awe, not just, for example, in uh, the Aurora Borealis or the Grand Canyon, but in their day-to-day -day life. They seek wonder and awe. Um, there was a, another wonderful work, All the Diminished Self and Collective Engagement by psychologist Laura Marushkin, as well as uh, et al. There was many other psychologists in the paper that all is the affect that most significantly reduces stressful self-referential thought, blurs the line between our sense of self and the world, and shifts the perception from me to we, and in so doing imbues life with a greater sense of awe and interest. Now this idea is everywhere. Camus, one of the great existentialists wrote a book that I had to read when I was in high school and it left its mark, I still quote it, uh, The Myth of Sisyphus. And he noted that when one reaches an accurate appraisal that there's little hope for a better future for the world. <laughs> he was a bit of a pessimist in his own way, but he said that it's our, responsible to create, our responsibility to create purpose or meaning through revolting uh, against bourgeois materialism and careerism and exploring freedom at every opportunity that it presents itself. For him, Sisyphus' suffering came from the, you know, this ongoing expectation that the boulder would stay up at the top of the hill, but Sisyphus' release would be if he found interest and 
excitement and engagement and simply pushing the boulder up, not the expectation that it would stay at the top of the, of the hill. Um, in the Dharma, the Buddha teaches that Mida, which is his word for languishing, it's spelled M-I-D-D-H-A in English. It's an ancient Pali word. Um, it's taught that mida or languishing comes from habitually perceiving experiences as lack, as lacking any intrinsic value or uh, as worth paying attention to. So over time, the Buddha teaches we habitually regard entire tasks and endeavors in our life as something that we're familiar with where we don't expect there to be anything new worth paying attention to. And so as we engage in these activities, whether it's showering or cooking or uh, doing some form of work or um, scheduling or whatever, we uh, bring to it an expectation that there's nothing of interest. And so we stop paying attention to the actual sensations that are occurring and but from a dharmic perspective there's nothing that's inherently boring nothing in fact on uh, buddhist retreats some of the greatest experiences of enlightenment like uh, events that people report happen when they're doing their mundane assigned tasks whether it's peeling vegetables chopping onions or uh I had to on one retreat, I was there scrubbing the toilet and uh, paying attention to it. And I had actually an amazing experience uh, at the time at um, a retreat in, in, in uh, uh, Northern California. So the Buddha teaches not only that nothing is inherently boring, that it's simply a lack of effort or what's called viriya that we place into awareness of our activities. So there's nothing intrinsically uh, about the world that should cause languishing for the Buddha. It's simply that the familiarity with tasks, we habitually stop paying attention. And so apathy is just the inevitable result of habitually believing that things don't require our our mindful attention. We give ourselves permission to get lost in thought, and the more we get lost in thought or default mode operation of the brain, the less we find anything in life worth engaging in apathy sets in. So um, the key for the, the antidote in Buddhism to languishing is vikara, which means getting curious about life again, really paying attention closely to what's going on, um, to find uh, what's, really, what's really happening in the body, in the breath and feelings when we're feeling uh, uh, languishing apathetic ennui <clears throat> rather than to give ourselves permission to just get even more lost in thought the call is to be mindful 
and really devote effort into exploring it. So for our practice tonight, we're actually going to put that at the hallmark of, of this, our meditation. Our meditation is going to be on one of the oldest uh, practices called the Anapanasati, which is mindfulness of the breath. It's the probably the first meditation that the Buddha taught. And the point is of it is to learn to re-engage with one of the most, for many of us, monotonous experiences, just the breathing of the body, that's often overlooked, to say the least, and to bring awareness to the sensations caused by the movement of the breath and the body and learn how to make the breath exciting, engaging, thrilling, uh, joyous, uh, absorbing. So that's going to be our practice. So thanks for listening to the talk on languishing, and I hope it was of some interest. Um, I should note, if you'd like to support my work as a Buddhist pastor, um, the PayPal button's on the Dharma Punks NYC site, but also the Venmo's Dharma Punks with an XNYC. So thanks for that. And now just find the most comfortable seated position and um, just uh, try to cultivate a state of ease. And for this practice, if you can, it would probably be uh, most helpful to close one's eyes. When we close our eyes, a large part of uh, mental processing, the occipital lobe, which processes sight, drifts away, and we become, we activate what's called your parietal lobe, which brings more attention to internal sensations, and that's what we're focusing this practice on. Now, for those of you who really find it very difficult to focus on the breath, you can, if you'd like to just meditate during this period, you could use just awareness of sounds. But for, I'm going to be narrating the, this very old meditation, the Anapanasati, using some of the original instructions from the Pali Canon. So, just take a moment to try to cultivate a seat that feels most comfortable. So for example, um, take a moment to just soften the belly, adjust your position, your seat if you need to, to be comfortable. Uh, pull the shoulders, rotate the shoulders up and drop them so that you have a nice open chest and um, then bring your awareness into your body and find any sensation that lets you know if you're breathing in or out. And so for me, 
that sensation is very often I use the belly because abdominal breathing has uh, been shown to be some of the most easeful. It activates the vagal nerve and it switches us very efficiently into parasympathetic states. So that's what I use, but don't feel that that's the right one. Uh, many people use the breath at the tip of the nose or the, the breath in the chest or you know, any other place you feel is very uh, relaxing to rest your awareness on. So the first instruction in the Anapanasati is to become aware if you're breathing in long or short, and if you're breathing out long or short, which means is the in-breath sustained and full or does it feel cut off? Does the exhalation feel very long and relaxing or cut off? So just become aware of how your breath is presenting itself. Am I breathing in? or does it feel cut off? Am I breathing out fully and completely or does it feel abated or shortened?
Now the next instruction is to expand your awareness and try to experience the breath throughout the body. What that can be translated as is simply don't keep the sensations of the breath in a narrow confine like just the abdomen. Now see if you can feel the energy of the breath, for instance, moving from the belly to the chest up to the sternum, even to the throat, and then during the exhalation, feel the release starting in the maybe the neck or the face and then the release continuing down the chest to the belly and even the energy of the breath and going down the legs all the way to the floor. Some in some retreats, <coughs> uh, monks have instructed to uh, feel the energy starting all the way in the bottom of the, the soles of the feet and then moving up through the legs into the pelvis, then the belly up to the chest and throat and face, and then the exhalation, the energy moving down. So in that way, we're feeling the breath moving through the body. And that would mean really lengthening the inhalation and the sensations of the exhalation, which is very relaxing and restorative.
So next the Buddha asks us to use the breath, this energy moving up the body, crescendoing, and then releasing in exhalation, going down. Use this breath energy to relax any discomfort or an ease in the body. So if there's a pain or a sense of numbness or ache somewhere, be creative and try to use your breath to bring some ease. So for instance, if you have a pain in your back, find a place of ease beneath the pain and above the pain and then breathe up from one area through the pain to the area that feels relaxed above it and then the exhalation breathe down through it and each time try to relax a little the goal is not to so much eradicate pain is just learn to be use the breath to be with it in a way that reduces the emotional suffering that pain creates. Now, for some of us might have headaches, migraines, or the like, find a place between your eyes and just breathe in and just really soften and feel the breath bringing a sense of lightness and awareness, and then as you breathe out, feel that area relaxing and expanding.
Now here's where we begin to directly address languishing in this meditation. Use your breath now to cultivate a state of full absorption in this moment in a way that brings a state of what could be called awe or full engagement with this moment in time, bringing a sense of amazement, if you will, that this breath that's been, we've been observing is what's kept us alive our entire life. This breath is what has allowed all of our experiences. This breath is what has nourished and kept us going while asleep, while vulnerable. Finding in the breath a miraculous the appreciation of and wonder of being alive itself. Such a unique and unlikely gift. Everything in our lives rests dependent on the body breathing. Every amazing achievement rests dependent on the body breathing. So see if you can cultivate a sense of true, deep, engaged, curious appreciation that your body is breathing and allowing you to be present and alive in this moment.
And from here on, use the breath to develop a transcendent state where we can be with all of the sensations around us without any form of addictive clinging, craving for short-term addictive pleasures, nor aversion or hatred to anything that we're experiencing, nor a mindless getting lost in thought, using the breath to stay present and aware and with our experience in a way that is curious and engaged and present.
So at this point, uh, I'm going to ring the bowl and uh, take your time. There's no need to quickly open your eyes and try to bring any calmness or curiosity or whatever you've cultivated in your practice, try to bring it into this uh, the, the evening as it continues. Thank you.